Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. This week I'm with Sky from... Hello. You have, I think you're one of the few people who have a longer podcast name than me. <laughs> it's it's very long, and everyone's like, "Oh, well, what, like, why'd you pick that?" And it's basically just because I'm not creative, and I wanted it to be very clear what the podcast was about. So, so the opposite of mine, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much the exact opposite of my name. Yeah. So it's histories, mysteries, and conspiracies, right? Yes. Myself, <laughs> trying to remember it all week. I'm like, I know this. I know this. But yes, and you're going to tell us a story this week. Mm-hmm. Talking about Jennifer Pan. Do you know the story? I love this story. I also have clearly a lot of issues um, because I love it. <laughs> it's just... It's it's so wild. Like, I remember the first time I heard it, I was just like... I heard on My Favorite Murder, and I was like, what? 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 And it just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And it's I, like the Big Bang Theory yeah. where they have, like, 40 chests or something, and you're just like, mm-hmm. what? What is happening? Because that's legitimately the story, is 40 chests. Yeah, for real. And you're just sitting there like, oh my gosh. I think the... Like, I remember first hearing it on Dark Poutine, so... Okay. But they're also, it was Vancouver, right, where she was? Um, I don't know if that's where she was. It was Canada. I know she went to, lived in Toronto, or, like, was by okay, Toronto at one point in time. Probably Toronto. So the opposite side of the country. Like, she was close enough, I, when she was in Toronto, she was close enough to go back to, like, where her parents lived. So, so. yeah. yeah. Nearish Toronto. <laughs> yeah, so close to me then, because Ohio, kind of north across the lake, Oh, yeah, you're in Ohio, and I'm in Michigan. Woo. I'm not a football fan. I should mention that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> My brother did go to Ohio State, so I do know all the traditions. For for non-Midwestern people, Ohio and Michigan hate each other. <laughs> Basically because of football. Basically. Ohio State Buckeyes and uh, University of Michigan. U yeah. of M. Yeah, Wolverines. Wolverines every year it's the big game and then they stopped burning things now so oh that's good yeah it's great <laughs> yeah i didn't go to u of m i didn't go to state so i am not involved with that rivalry and i'm not involved in the ohio rivalry so oh, i'm not either i went to miami and we don't do sports except for hockey which doesn't make sense <laughs> Because it's around cornfields. And you're just like, hockey! That's what we're going with. Okay. Yeah, so tell us about Jennifer Pan and let's start this game of 4D chess. So I'm going to start like in the middle and then we'll go back to the beginning. Because I feel like the story's better told this way. So on November 8th, 2010, 25-year-old Gen- Jennifer Pan was on the phone in her room watching some TV casual night. And her mom was Bic Ha was... 53 years old at the time, downstairs watching TV. And then her dad was upstairs taking a nap, maybe in going in, going to bed for the night. And at this time, he was 57 and his name is Han. So it's Vic and Han. And her brother was away at college. Suddenly, three men burst into their house, each armed with a gun. They harassed the parents. They took her dad, brought him downstairs. They took Jennifer upstairs, tied her to the banister with a shoestring. And they took the parents and brought them into the basement. Now, during this time, Bic desperately pleaded for her daughter's life to be spared. 
and both Bick and Han were shot multiple times. Once the man, men had fled, Jennifer called the police in hysterics. She said, help me, please. I need help. She explained that she'd managed to free herself after the gunman had tied her hands. And her blood-soaked father crawled from the basement, surviving the blood, sh- the gunshot. And he first thing he sees is his dead wife. And he's just screaming. And on the 911 call, you can hear her dad screaming. And it's really, really eerie. And her dad ended up getting rushed to the hospital and he had been put in a medically induced coma so the police couldn't really talk to him when jennifer was brought in for questioning they asked her to reenact how she was able to call 911 if she was tied up because when they got to the house she was still tied up so they were really confused about that and some there were some holes in her stories like things like with that and it just didn't make a lot of sense so they began to follow her including to her mother's funeral where she didn't cry and her emotions were described to the police by the police as not genuine but I do like to comment on that because some people handle grief and trauma very oh, yeah. differently. So could have just been like some some people I know, even if they get bad news, they'll mm-hmm. laugh at it. Like they'll hear something horribly and tragic. So just wanted to. I think it's just there. amazing that her father survived because I forget how, he had like multiple right? gunshot wounds and he it's they must have just not hit the right areas. But you're like, oh, my God, you climbed up. He got I think it like skim it like barely hit his carotid like it like hit like went right next to it like it was like a millimeter over he would have died and didn't her her, like neighbors hear him because he was like screaming so loud yeah yeah they're the ones who called or they also called the police so when they re-listened to uh, when the police re-listened to jennifer's 911 call they had wondered they could hear han screaming but his first thing was to go outside and yell so he didn't go and try to check in on jennifer and see how she was doing so they were like, that's kind of weird. But once Han came out of his coma, then the police kind of figured out what was going on. So now let's go back to the beginning. So Jennifer Pan was born June 17, 1986. She's a Vietnamese-Canadian woman of Chinese descent, and both of her parents came to Canada from Vietnam. Her parents worked at Magna International, which is an auto parts manufacturer in Ontario. Um, and they worked very hard to make sure that their kids had opportunities and an upbringing that they wanted for themselves, but they had to miss out on. But part of that was that they had very high expectations for their kids. Jennifer began piano. Yeah. <laughs> Those Asian parents are very, very intense from what I've heard. Yeah, very want a lot mm-hmm. of success for their kids and will work really hard to make sure they have it. Now, Jennifer had piano lessons starting at age four, and then she also had figure skating training most of the week. So she had hopes of becoming an Olympian, but she tore a ligament in her knee, so she wasn't able to continue it super long. But while she was in figure skating, they would she would like go to school, and then she would go to figure skating until like 10 p.m., and then she would get home and have to do her homework. How do you, like, that's always a crazy thing when you think about that. Like, how do you function? This is why when you see those high, like, quality olympians and like athletes they're all homeschooled because Mm -hmm. you don't have time for school and bs Mm -hmm. like it's like you're going you're doing your school in between practicing and like at your breaks and you're there all day and it's just insane it is crazy like i can't even think about that like i did figure skating when i was in elementary school but it was like in the summer i would go a lot because it was something to do and at the time i lived in new mexico and it was hot so it would it would just be nice to go and ice skate and indoors and everything like that. So I would go probably like every other day of the week. But during the school year, no, I'd go like once a week. Which is more so reasonable. I, yeah. 
I, I can't even imagine doing that much. I, I, I swam. And I mean, when I was in high school, we'd go, it was five days a week after school. And then there were Saturday practices plus meets. And I mean, there was some time between practice and school, like, or school and practice, and then you'd get home at, like, 9.30 to 10, and then you'd finish whatever you didn't do, and then you'd, granted, you eat second dinner, and then you'd go to sleep, but that's just swimming, so. <laughs> yeah, swimming, I was gonna say, swimming is so tiring. So tiring, too, so that, that's insane. I'm more tired now than I was then, because it gives you, like, you get, like, once you get that endurance, you just have the energy, and now I don't do it, I'm just like, oh, man, I'm, I tried to go swim the other day, and I was just like, so out of shape. Can't do anything. I, uh, I'm not a strong swimmer, so I don't swim a lot, which is like, probably should swim more because I'm not a strong swimmer. But as a result, I just don't like swimming. <laughs> so I don't swim that much. I don't anymore. I used, I mean. Okay. So in elementary school, Jennifer got great grades and won trophies for her accomplishments. And she began to, like, in middle school, she began to get really stressed out because she wasn't doing as well as her parents would hope. Like, mm-hmm. when she hit middle school, she wasn't getting as good of grades. No longer straight-A student. Mm-hmm. And she began engaging in self-harm to cope with the, the stress that she was experiencing. And when she graduated in grade 8, she and her family expected her to be the valid Victorian and receive a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. She received no awards and was not valid Victorian. So this just added to the stress that she was experiencing. Now, her high school friend, Karen Cahoe, uh, she described Han as the classic tiger dad, and Bick was his reluctant accomplice. So when Jennifer failed to win first place at skating competitions, she tried to hide her devastation from her parents because she didn't want them to be more disappointed in her. And her mother, Bick, would notice something was amiss and that she was upset and would comfort her daughter at night. When Han was asleep, she would tell Jennifer, you know, all we want from you is just your best. Just do what you can. It's just interesting because normally it's the tiger mom, not the tiger dad. So it's like interesting to see the change dynamics. Yeah. I think it's really sad, too, because it's like her mom, like, obviously didn't want like she wanted her to succeed, but she didn't want her to be unhappy Mm. while doing it. And so it just makes the whole thing really sad. Oh, yeah. It's like the pressure from one parent putting on another parent. She's just like, I'm trying. When during the school year, they would pick up Jenna from her classes, ended each day and monitored her extracurricular activities very, very carefully. So they were very strict. And she swam and played the flute in high school band. They never permitted her to date boys while she attended high school. And she wasn't allowed to attend high school dances or proms because they didn't want her to be distracted. If she had a sleepover, they would drop her off very late and pick her up very early. She was not permitted to attend any parties um and well especially like when they her parents thought she was at university they were like you can't attend any parties there either just kept very close eye on all of her actions and at the age of 22 she had never gone to a club been drunk visited a friend's cottage or gone on vacation without her family that's so weird it's it it, like you're not living like how do you you can't you can't be a fully functioning person Right. I like it's so hard to because like sometimes like that's what you look forward to. It's like the school year. It's like oh, everything is hard and the classes are hard. But at least on Friday, I get to go like get to go to this prom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's so sad too to be surrounded by like all like the promposals and mm-hmm. everybody's so excited for all these things and her knowing that like she can't go. Yeah, that's it's just even more isolating. They just have built her in this little like it's not even like a room. It's just like a circle around her where they're like, it's this glass circle and she's like looking out at them. It's a 90s 
uh, music video, basically. And you think about, like, the people at the school probably figured out really quickly that she can't, like, her parents don't let her hang out and they're really strict, so they're going to stop inviting her to stuff. Yeah, because they, they don't want her to feel awkward. Yeah, so it's like she's just not going to get invited and then it's a cycle. Her poor friends, because they probably do want to invite her, they're like, oh, we like you, we want you to come, but then, like, or the disappointment or having her have to sneak out or something. Yeah, that's, it's just so sad. So, in high school, she received average grades, except in music. She did really well there. She often forged report cards to depict straight A's, even though she was receiving, like, it was like a B average. I just, I'm always impressed when kids have, like, forged their report right? cards. I'm like, my parents mm-hmm. would have found out, and it would not have gone well. My parents didn't really check my grades. Like, they weren't keeping tabs on it. Like, if I got good mm-hmm. grades, I would show them. So, if I wasn't showing them it, they knew they weren't good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, debate, listen, hearing about her dad, it makes you wonder, like, if he had, how much control he had over her mom. Like, was he controlling her, too? And, like, was, like, I believe wouldn't let her do anything? It's a patriarchal society, so it probably was. Women have the soft power, the men have the hard power, but in this case, he has both powers. And Vic is just sitting there, doing her best. Trying to just keep everyone happy. Apparently. In high school, Jennifer received early admission into Ryerson University, but her parents wanted her to go to University of Toronto, so she told them that her plan was to transfer there eventually, and her plan was to study pharmacology, which actually her dad chose that career path for her. Now, she failed calculus and <laughs> her senior year and lost early admission, and as a result, she never graduated high school either. Oh my god. Also, pharmacology, not easy. To, it's like if you're struggling and someone chooses that, you're just like... Uh, well good thing you already don't have a life you're just gonna get stressed yeah and and it makes me interesting interested in like why he chose that for her yeah to like just become a doctor well i guess it's a it's a specialized doctor it's a fancy fancy md i guess so she lied to her parents and just started pretending she was going to university and she would just go to, and it was like close enough that she could drive. So she would just go to cafes <laughs> and would teach piano and work as a bartender. Can I just say this sounds like a movie? Like this Doesn't whole it? setup is like, right? I'm totally going to this place. Not going to yeah, this place. Yeah, it's like this part kind of sounds like more innocent. And it sounds like something that could be like almost like a Hallmark movie. Like yes. At the end of the parents make up. And everything's happy. <laughs> and she gets married because that's how all Hallmark movies end. <laughs> and she gets married to the man she loves. Her parents don't approve of. Mm-hmm. And they kiss at like 56. I think that's always when they kiss. They kiss four minutes before the end of the movie. <laughs> Every time. Every time. I'm a family friend. We've watched a lot of Hallmark movies. They And then I just get this text like, we figured out the formula. <laughs> <laughs> we figured it out. Hallmark movies. Watch it. They do. Uh, they have to watch it. We should be watching the clock, like, timing, waiting for the kiss. Yeah, it's, like, really, like, within the last five minutes, the, the kiss happens, but they don't kiss anywhere else in that entire movie, and you're just like, this is not how relationships work. <laughs> this isn't, this is not, mm, no. And they, <laughs> I mean, I guess any Hallmark movie, though, it's not how relationships work, so. Yes, Jennifer. Jennifer. So she told her parents that she was getting all these scholarships, so they didn't have to pay for anything. And then she kept up this ruse for two years, and then she claimed that she was accepted into the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. So she was good to transfer there. And she received scholarships there, too. Weird. So guess what? They don't need to pay for anything. Mm-hmm. So she had to... I- 
So she went to the extent of purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos and just filling notebooks with notes related to pharmacology so that she could show her parents and basically just pretend to know her stuff. I'm kind of impressed, though, because that you can't get regular pharmacology students to really want to do that. Right. And she's like, I want to know what she was thinking during this time, because this isn't a long game. Like, she's obviously not going to graduate. She doesn't even have a high school degree or diploma and what are her parents gonna think when she can't get a job yeah in pharmacology yeah they're like where's your job see really the smart plan would be get your ged during this time and then slowly work and get a degree in something you want and just trick them yeah and then be like haha i really have this degree i really loved art the whole time and then jazz hands and glitter i think that's just bo burnham pulling glitter out of his pocket. That's what I was thinking. Out of his pocket. He's like, ha <laughs> I can't even think of that bit, but yeah, I was just thinking about that too. <laughs> just has glitter in his pockets. And my thought is, your poor laundry is going to be full of glitter for years. It's just going to be in the Forever. washing machine. Every so often, just some glitter. I know all like all of his tour clothes that have glitter on them. Yeah. Oh my God. And then it's once it gets in the machine, you're screwed. You're, you're finding glitter for days. There's no, there's no going back from that. So Jennifer asked her parents, because she was close enough to commute, but she said she wanted to stay with her friend Topaz, and then it was easier to commute, and then she had more time to study and stuff like that. So she wanted to stay there just a few days during the week. So they said yes, and she was actually staying with her boyfriend, Daniel Chi Kwang Wang. And Daniel was actually a high school sweetheart, mm-hmm. but her parents didn't know anything about him, because, you know, no boys alive. So... Her and Daniel were actually friends in band, and their relationship was platonic until they went on a band trip to Europe in 2003. And after a performance in a concert hall filled with smokers, Jennifer had an asthma attack. She started freaking out, and Daniel led her outside and calmed her down and helped her with, with breathing. She said that he pretty much saved my life, and it meant everything. And then they started dating shortly after Aww, that. Aw, band kids. Yeah, it was a little cute. So, now... It's time for her to graduate college. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So she creates a false transcript and diploma and told her parents that it was a large class. So they were only giving students one ticket to graduation. And she didn't want her parents to have to choose. Mm. So she just spared them by giving her ticket to her friend. Oh, that's nice. It's it's really nice, except for that's, like, not even a good lie. No, that's not how college works. She should have been like, I had an interview on the day of graduation mm-hmm. or something, so I couldn't go. Yeah. Like, I feel like that would have been more acceptable to them. Yeah. Or I just don't like the speaker. I don't want to go. Yeah, just, like, I feel like there's a million better reasons mm-hmm. that are more plausible. Oh, yeah. So while she was in school, she told her parents that she started working as a volunteer at Toronto's prestigious hospital for sick children known as sick kids and she uh, yeah i don't that's that's it it's sick kids one word it's unfortunate why i get you're gonna know where you're going but still <laughs> also toronto why are you naming your hospital for sick children hospital for sick children yeah questions so many questions i know that's not a good it's name not, it reminds me of like <laughs> when they would be like this is the school for deaf kids, or like this is this, and you're just yeah, like it's like it's like the Derek Zoolander Center for Children Who Can't Read Good or and want to do learn to do other things good too. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, except for it's not a school for ants. It needs to be at least like ten times bigger than this. 
Okay, so Han and Vic became suspicious because she didn't have a uniform or an ID badge or anything like that. Which, I mean, Jennifer, I feel like she could have been clever enough to create a badge. It's not hard. Go to Kinko's. Whatever, and just buy a polo. Buy, like, a blue polo and call that your uniform. Be like, I just gotta have khakis and, like, a blue polo and you're good. Exactly. Like, that would be fine. And then go to Kinko's, make your ID, get out, like, one of those fun things that's uh, has a little lacti- elastic so you can yeah. be like shh, 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 shh. I can't think of what they're called I literally wear one at work and I can't think of what they're called yeah <laughs> but yeah those pole reel or pole reel maybe I don't know so, uh, or lanyard put it on lanyard something yeah lanyard there you go so they offered to drive her to work because they were suspicious and once they dropped her off um, Han told Vic to follow her. So Jennifer really quickly realized that her mom was following her. So she ran into the ER and hid in the waiting area for a few hours until they left. They waited a few hours? I That's what I was thinking, too. I Well, her parents, I'm not surprised that they probably spent... Because if her mom was like, oh, I lost her, Han would be like, um, no, you didn't. Go back and find her. Like, ask around, do something. So Also, how are they working at this time? That's my question. Right? I don't you have know. this much time to wait hours after you dropped your daughter off at work? Mm-hmm. All in the name of success. So, early the next morning, they called Topaz, and it was like, who groggily told the truth? And that she say, just came clean and said Jennifer wasn't there. Jennifer hadn't been staying with her. I don't know what you're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. She was not a loyal friend. I think basically. she didn't know about it. If- I don't think she knew about it either. That's- so, I, I feel like that was also a bad move on Jennifer's Jennifer- part. Jennifer... If you're gonna lie, you have to include the friends in that are in the lie. If you're gonna lie, lie to everybody all the time. People who aren't in on the lie, like 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 you just gotta cover. I'm your sure bases, if you would have told Topaz, hey, just tell my parents I'm staying with you. She yeah. would have done it. She would have been like, oh okay, if she was a good. Yeah, friend. she's probably like, mama, parents are crazy. Like, just tell them I'm staying with you because I'm working or something. Yeah. So they figured it out. Jennifer came home. Han confronted her and. She confessed that she didn't volunteer at SickKids, had never been in U of, U of T's pharmacology program, and had indeed been staying at her boyfriend's. Though she didn't tell him, she forgot. To, she did forgot. She did not tell them that she never graduated high school, and that her time at Ryerson was also complete fiction. But her mom was just devastated, and her dad was pissed. Han told Jennifer to get out and never come back, but Vic convinced him to let their daughter stay. They took away her cell phone and laptop for two weeks, after which she was only permitted to use them in her parents' presence and had to endure surprise checks of her messages. They forbade her from seeing Daniel. They ordered her to quit all of her jobs except for teaching piano, and then they began tracking the odometer on her car. So at this point in time, she's 24. She's a grown-ass adult. Yes. Maybe she's 23. But either way, she's an adult. And I think they even gave her the option that they're like, you can either stay or you can leave, and then we'll ever talk Was to you it? again. Yeah, basically. yeah. That's crazy because your your only two options or are to stay in this horrible abusive situation, or yeah. to leave and never see your family again. And you're just like, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say what you would pick. Mm-hmm. So and it's like she didn't. I mean, it's unclear if she had other friends like that she could have stayed with during that time, and she could have stayed with Daniel. But you know, I don't really know why she chose the way she did. Maybe, I mean, it was her parents and people who raised her, and she had gone through all these elaborate lies to make them happy. So, uh, like, obviously she didn't care what they think. Maybe it's, like, the the demon you know versus the unknown, where yeah. she knows at least what's going to happen if she stays there. And she, like, she's comfortable at this point. It's her normal. 
So why risk going out there? Yeah, and it's... I don't know what her plan was, why she chose that. Yeah. Could also have been, like, heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'll stay. Whatever. So she was still madly in love with Daniel, and she was super lonely because she was stuck there. And for two weeks, she was housebound with her mother by her side the whole time. So, like you said before, are they working? I don't know. So... Bick told Jennifer where her dad had hidden the phone so she could periodically check her messages. And in February of 2009, she wrote on her Facebook page, living in my house is like living under house arrest. She also posted a note, no one person knows everything about me and no two people put together knows everything about me. I like being a mystery. So during the spring and summer, she snuck calls with Daniel on her cell phone at night, whispering in the dark. Eventually, she was allowed some freedom. She enrolled in a calculus course to to finish her high school career and she would visit daniel in between piano lessons so one night she snuck out of the house and her mom caught her sneaking out of the house and they ordered jennifer to come back home immediately and they demand that she apply to college and could still be a pharmacy lab tech or nurse and told her that she had to cut off all contact with daniel what my thing is what issues do they have with daniel because i think it just didn't help that they well they didn't like guys to begin with and then she well, they didn't. They told her originally that she couldn't date until after college. So she gets involved with this guy. They figure out they've been dating since high school, and she doesn't graduate high school. And so, as a result, never goes to college. Goes with these lies. So to them, they probably see it as once Daniel came into her life, she started just not like messing up and lying and just being a terrible person. Which doesn't seem the case. Daniel probably would have. No. I mean, he wasn't a great guy. He had his own track record, got kicked out of schools. He was a drug dealer. So he's not the best, but he also. He's not the worst. Yeah, he's not being horrible to her. Yeah. So you have to, like, think the other side of that, too. You're like, well, he's not horrible, but he's not the best. He's not great either. So shortly after this, Daniel broke up with her with jennifer and he began seeing a girl named christine jennifer was obviously super upset about this so she created the story that a man had knocked on her door and flashed what looked like a police badge when she opened the door a group of men rushed in overpowered her and gang raped her in the foyer a few days later she said she received a bullet in an envelope in her mailbox and she claimed that both of these were from christine for warnings from christine to stay away from daniel and daniel believed this broke up with christine got back together with jennifer that's i mean very elaborate and uh, very intense to do. Um, and I don't think most girls immediately go to having your boyfriend's ex gang raped. Right? Like that. And I mean, I feel like because da- Daniel knew about all of her lies with school. Mm-hmm. Why would he believe that right away? Too? Yeah. It's a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. So in spring of 2010, Jennifer reconnected with Andrew Montmere, who was a friend from elementary school. So Jennifer claims that he had boasted about robbing people at Knife Point in a park near his home. He denied this, but she told him about her relationship with her dad, and Montmere confessed that he also considered killing his own father. He introduced Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, and together they hatched a plan for Duncan to murder her father in the parking lot at his work. Jennifer gave him $1,500 up front, and they agreed to arrange a time and date later. Duncan stopped responding to calls, and Jennifer had been Jennifer thought she'd been ripped off. But Duncan says that she'd called him in early July, hysterical, requesting that he come and kill her parents. He felt offended and said no, and she gave him two hundred dollars one time, which he actually did return. I yeah, I don't trust her story always because she's a bit of a compulsive liar. 
And who who brags about stabbing people in the park? Like, you're just sitting there like, um, that's just how you get caught, sir. <laughs> Have you not watched Dateline? I was just going to say, I mean, that's what... That's how people get caught is they brag or they start doing things like, I'm so sneaky. Here's a letter. I think about P- BTK all the time and he's <gasps> like, so can you track, <laughs> what was it? Was it a floppy disk? Can you track a floppy disk? And then children. Uh, no. <laughs> if you don't know what a floppy disk is, look at the little save symbol on Microsoft Word. That's a floppy it's disk. It's a precursor to a flash drive and it sucks. <laughs> You need about 30 of them for anything of substance. I think the first and last time I had a, I interacted with a floppy disk wasn't even my interaction. It was this kid in my class in fifth grade brought his paper that he had to turn in on a floppy disk. And that was it. And I was like, and I like knew what they were because my parents had them. My dad is like a computer guy, but we were kind of past it by the time I was old enough to know things. And so I was like, I knew what it was. I was just like, this is so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I used floppy disk for a while. Like, I remember having my parents were like, okay, this is your floppy disk. So if you have to do something at school and take it, come back and work on the computer, here's your floppy disk. And I, yeah, it's insane. We still have them at my parents' house. Like probably about 20 well, of them. Back to Jennifer. Jen, Den- Jennifer and Daniel. Jennifer and Daniel are back together. And Daniel is their couple name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so they are back in contact, exchanging daily flirty texts, and they devise an even more sinister plan. So they'd hire a hit on Vic and Han, collect the estate, which Jennifer's portion totaling about $500,000. How do you know this? I don't know my parents' estate. Right? I don't know. Maybe she was digging in stuff. Well, she was home a lot. <sighs> yeah, that's that's true. And they were going to live together after it, unencumbered by meddling parents. So Daniel gave Jennifer a spare iPhone and SIM card and connected her to Lenford Crawford, whose nickname was Homeboy. Let's not lie. Lenford Crawford. Great name. Yeah. Homeboy. He sounds not not as much. much. He sounds like a Victorian gangster. (laughs) He does. This is Lenford Crawford. He's uh, the leader of, I don't know, Ripper Street. That's that was not an actual game, <laughs> and then everyone beats him up just because you call him homeboy. So he said he was gonna it was gonna cost twenty thousand dollars for the hit, but because he's a friend of Daniel's, it could be done for ten thousand. Jennifer was careful to use her iPhone for crime related conversations and her Samsung phone for everything else. So on November second, no, okay, so before I talk about that, after the police, like once they started talking to her, they're like, "Hey, can we see your phones?" And she was like, yeah, sure, you're not going to find anything on there. But she gave him her phone. So all these texts are real texts that the police found. My thing is, her her, her murder phone is an iPhone, but her real right? phone is a Samsung. A Samsung flip phone. Yes. Oh, those things never break. You could chuck them at someone and they still wouldn't break. I mean, this was in 2010, too. I, I think. I'm trying to think. The iPhones were, like, newer during that yeah. time. Like, it was, like... Three yeah, two? I think it would be even better if she had a Nokia. If her parents were like, we love you this much, we got you a Nokia. It's never going to die. <laughs> it's so good. You can play Snake on it all day. <laughs> That's really what she was doing. She wasn't texting. She was just playing Snake. She just playing Snake. <laughs> That's all she has is her life now. They delete Snake off the phone, too, so she can't have that. That is cruel and unusual punishment. 
so on November 2nd, Daniel texted Jennifer saying that he felt if, no, that he felt as strongly about Christine as she did about him. So Jennifer responds saying, so you feel for her what I feel for you, then call it off with homeboy. Daniel responded, I thought you wanted this for you. Jennifer, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Daniel, call it off with homeboy. You said you wanted this with or without me. Jennifer, I want it for me. The next day, Daniel texted, I did everything and lined it all up for you. So it seemed that Daniel wanted out, but within hours, they reverted back to their old ways, texting and flirting. Later that day, Crawford texted Jennifer, I need the time of completion. Think about it. Jennifer wrote back, today is a no-go. Dinner plans out, so won't be home in time. Over the following week, there was a flurry of text and phone conversations between Jennifer and Daniel between Jennifer, Daniel, and Crawford. Then, on the morning on morning of November 8th, Crawford texted Jennifer, after work, okay, will be game time. Now, here is the, now here's the thing we heard at the beginning, but here's it in more detail. So it little, makes a little bit more sense now. So Jennifer was in her bedroom while Han read the Vietnamese news down the hall before heading to bed around 8.30pm. Mick was out live dancing with a friend and cousin. Felix was her brother, wasn't home. I love Bic going out line dancing. Yeah, Bic. I know. Get it, Bic. You do something for so, you. Uh, <laughs> you do you. At 9.30 p.m., Bic came home from her line dancing class. Oh, it was a class, oh, too. Yeah, girl. She changed into her PJs and soaked her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. At 9.35, a man named David Milvagenum. I'm going with it. A friend of Crawford's called Jennifer and they spoke for nearly two minutes. Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to Bick, and as Jennifer later admitted, she unlocked the door. At 10.02 p.m., the light in the upstairs study switched on, which was a signal to the intruders, and a minute later, it switched off. At 10.05, Milveganim called again, and he and Jennifer spoke for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Crawford, Milveganim, and a third man named Eric Carty walked through the front door all three carrying guns. One pointed his gun at Vic while another ran upstairs, shoved a gun at Han's face, and directed him out of bed, down the stairs, and into the living room. Now, Vic asked Han and Cantonese, how could they enter the house? And he responded with, I don't know, I was sleeping. And then the intruder said, shut up, you talk too much. Where's the fucking money? Han had just $60 in his wallet and said as much. Liar, one man repeated, and pistol whipped him in the back of the head. Vic began weeping, pleading with the men not to hurt their daughter. One of the intruders replied, rest assured, she is nice and will not be hurt. Now, Cardi led Jennifer upstairs and tied her arms to the banister while Milvaganum and Crawford took Bick and Han to the basement and covered their heads with blankets. They shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and then in the face. He crumpled to the floor. They shot Bick three times in the head, killing her instantly, and then they fled through the door. That's interesting. Now we're kind of caught up. That they shot him in the shoulder and in, like, the face, like... When he was, like, really the more aggressor of the situation and she's been trying to kill him. And I think she actually liked her mom because her mom was always nice to her. I think so, too. And so it's just, I mean, you never want matricide, but you just, you just, I just feel bad for Vic because she tried to be a good mom at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And she even, like, even, like, while before she died, she was just like, just don't Mm -hmm. hurt her, like. And she was, like, telling her where, uh, Jennifer, where her phone was. She was, like, just, like, we want you to just be happy and successful and all of that. And he, and she's the one who ends up dead in this situation. It's really sad. So, by November 12th, Han had woken up from his three-day induced coma. 
He had a broken bone near his eye. Bullet fragments lodged in the space that the doctors couldn't remove and a shattered neck bone. The bullet had grazed a carotid artery. Remarkably, he remembered everything, including two troubling details. He recalled seeing his daughter chatting softly like a friend, he said, with one of the intruders, and her arms were not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. Once the police got this statement from Han, they brought jennifer in for questioning again but they told like basically told her like we know you're a part of it over nearly four hours jennifer spun into an absurd explanation she said that the attack had been an elaborate plan to commit suicide but it had gone horribly wrong she had given up on life but didn't know how to manage to kill herself so she hired homeboy who she said she didn't know his name his real name to do it in september however her relationship with her father had suddenly improved and she decided to call off the hit but somehow wires got crossed and basically they she says that they wanted money to Mm. cancel it essentially but she couldn't give it to them so they ended up killing her parents instead of her yeah no it's yeah it does make sense police arrested jennifer on the spot and then in the spring of 2011 Relying on analysis of cell phone calls and texts, they nabbed Daniel McMillanagnum, Cardi, and Crawford and charged all five with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Her trial lasted 10 months. Before the juries delivered their verdict, Jennifer appeared almost upbeat, playfully picking lay off her lawyer's robes. When the guilty verdict was delivered, she showed no emotion, but once the press had left the courtroom, she wept, shaking uncontrollably. For the charge of first-degree murder, Jennifer received... An automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years for the attempted murder of her father. She received another life sense of life to be served concurrently for her mother. Han and Felix, which was her brother, both wrote victim impact statements. Han said, when I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead, too. He is unable to work due to his injuries. He also suffers from anxiety attacks, insomnia, and when he can't sleep, ni- when he can sleep nightmares. He's in constant pain and has given up gardening, working on his car, and listening to music since none of those activities bring him joy anymore. He can't bear to be in his house, so he lives with his relatives that are nearby. Felix moved to the East Coast to find work with a private technology company and escape the stigma of being a member of the Pan family. He suffers from depression and has become closed off. Han is desperate to sell the family home, but no one will buy it. At the end of his statement, Han addressed Jennifer, I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday. It's just crazy. It's so sad, but it's also so preventable. Like, on, like, 12 different levels, it could have been preventable, and you're just like... Yeah. And Jennifer, I think at that point, she's just a compulsive liar, so what else does she know? I just want to know what the cops thought when they found the second phone, you know? Like, they're like, oh, wait. Right? What's this? I think they were kind of onto her, like, right from the get-go. Because the fact that she was alive and unharmed. And they said the guys weren't wearing masks and all this stuff, and they're like, yeah. why would they leave you alive? It's kind of like that, um, the case where the mom killed her kids in the car and she said someone tried to carjack them and she like was shot in the shoulder or something and it's like yeah you can easily shoot yourself in the shoulder yeah and the cops were like that's weird especially because she was on tv and then as soon as the daughter woke up and every time her mom came in the room she would like the heart monitor kept jumping and they're like huh Mm -hmm. weird (laughs) this is a little fishy yeah but do you want to plug your show yeah so uh, my show is Histories, Mysteries, and Conspiracies, which talks about uh, all those things. So it's pretty pretty straightforward, and it's a similar format to yours, so I just have a new person every week, or just a person coming back, and we talk about 
different stories. And you can find me on Instagram, which is at HMCT Podcast, on Facebook at HMCT Podcast, on Twitter at Podcast HMCT, and then there's also a website with show notes, bonus stuff, cool things, which is Histories, Mysteries, cons- Histories, Mysteries, Conspiracies.com. Yay. And then next week you'll be back and I'll be telling you a story. Yes. Bye. Hey guys, July 13th is coming up soon. And if you want to meet me and a bunch of my podcasting friends, about 80 of them, come down to the True Crime Podcast Festival at the Marriott downtown, right on the Magnificent Mile, you know, right by the Bean in that beautiful park. So I'm excited to see some of my favorites. All Crime, No Cattle, Ignorance Was Bliss, Nature versus Narcissism, a Paranormal Chicks, The Getting Off Podcast, Dark Routine. All of your indie favorites are going to be there, as well as a lot of the big names. This is a full day event. And the sooner you sign up, the cheaper it's going to be. So make sure you sign up soon. And there's going to be meet and greets. I'll be there. Um, I have ordered some things. So if you're there, you might get some exclusive goodies. And, you know, there's some amazing events going on. Some panels like, uh, you know, getting off and... LA Not So Confidential are doing a live episode as part of this. There's also amazing panel with uh, Court Junkie, Misconduct, and Pretend Radio. So really, why haven't you bought your tickets yet? I already have, and I hope to see you there. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture, madness, dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case, featuring author and investigative criminologist Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, As well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.